Okay, well, welcome back to our Thessalonians series, Living the Dream. We're on 2 Thessalonians, the second letter, and in chapter 1. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that will give you a moment. But I want to start uh, with, with this quotation. Um, it's from an early church father, and he said these words, The scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning, and deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching the bottom. The scriptures are shallow enough for a babe to come and drink without fear of drowning, and deep enough for theologians to swim in without ever touching the bottom. You see, especially in the scripture that we'll be looking at this morning, there is so much depth to God's word. And the reason I'm quoting that is this, is there is only so deep that we can take you in, in 30 to 40 minutes, right? There's only so deep that we can go on a Sunday morning in our series teaching. And sometimes if we want to grasp that little bit deeper and that little bit more of what God is saying to us, particularly in our series teaching, then we have to sometimes take individual responsibility to study God's word for ourselves, right? Because otherwise we would have you here for hours and hours and hours and hours. And you're like, Jordan, your 45 minutes are long enough. So I want to encourage you to do this. As we go through the rest of the series, and there's, there's not much left, I would encourage you, because you'll know what we're doing next, to read the scripture before you come, and then to read it again after we've preached on it, so that you'll allow God's word to wash over your heart, but also you'll pick up on things that we haven't had the time to get through with you. Is that okay? Can we make a deal in that? That we would be willing to take individual responsibility for the teaching of the series. See, so it's going to be quite easy. So... This morning, we're doing 2 Thessalonians 1, which next, week, which next week we're doing 2 Thessalonians. We're doing 2 Thessalonians 2. And then we're doing 2 Thessalonians. Aha, there's only three chapters. <laughs> so you'll know the next three chapters what we're doing. We'll know, you'll know what's coming up. And so could I encourage you? So next week will obviously be 2 Thessalonians 2. Can I encourage you to read it before you come? And once we've taught on it, could you read it again and let that scripture wash over your heart that you would hear the Holy Spirit who wants to lead you into all truth to hear what God might be teaching you. Are you ready to go? Excellent. Okay, so we're in Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. It is a city, ancient city in northern Greece. His focus of the letter is eschatological. Now you think, oh, that's a big word. All the eschatological means is that it's about, it's scripture regarding the future, scripture regarding the last days, eschatological, that's all that that means. Not long after, so this is probably, some scholars reckon this could only be a matter of a couple of weeks, at most maybe a month or so, since Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians, which we just came out of with Pastor Philip in chapter 5, because Paul gets a report about the Christians in the city, about how some of the problems he addressed in the first letter have continued and even gotten worse. Persecution had intensified, and in fact, the believers, the Christians there, had become so confused and scared about the return of Jesus. And so Paul sends this short letter of three parts, we've broken it into three chapters, to deal with three problems in the church. Chapter one offers hope in persecution. Chapter two offers clarity about the second coming of Jesus. And chapter three challenges the idol, and we'll get into that in, as, we, as we approach chapter three, but long story short, 
people in the Thessalonian church, some people had kind of taken this attitude that, well, if Jesus is going to be coming back tomorrow, next week, or next month, I'm not going to bother going to work tomorrow morning. And so what they did is they literally lobbed in their twos, lobbed in their paperwork, whatever they had to do, and they just left work. And Paul then challenges them in chapter three. He says, okay, actually, yes, we need, to, we need to live as though Jesus' return is imminent, but we need to keep living for him. We need to keep doing and being faithful in the simple everyday things. Okay, so let's go to our scripture reading, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter one. Paul Silvanus, which, and Timothy, by the way, if your version says Silvanus, it may say Silas. Silvanus is just the proper name for Silas. Silas is actually the Greek nickname for Silvanus, okay? So Silvanus and Silas are the same person, okay? So if you're taking notes, you can take that down. Silvanus is the Latin Roman official name for this man. It's the same guy who was Paul's sidekick throughout the book of Acts, but Silas is actually his Greek nickname, So this is what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, just for your own Bible knowledge, you'll notice that most letters that Paul writes will start with uh, from Paul and X, Y, and Z person to, and then he names the church. Now, usually when we write letters in our context, I'll say um, to Chloe, insert message, da-da-da-da-da, you're sincerely, or lots of love, Jordan, right? Because that's how our culture works. But in those days, and again, it's just for your Bible knowledge, the way letters were written, the way messages were communicated was different. It started with the, uh, the sender of the letter and then immediately followed by the recipient of the letter. Hence why, hi guys, it's Paul, and I'm writing to you, Church in Thessalonica. Does that make sense? Good, okay. So, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulations those who trouble you and who give, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his almighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Does everybody feel uplifted? Yeah? Good. Do you see what I mean now when I say we can only take you so deep in 30 to 40 minutes, right? There's a lot in here, a lot of good stuff in here. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and in you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we pray before we get into the message? Let's go. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that your word is power 
the God, it is like a double-edged sword that can separate the soul and the spirit. Father God, I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds to your word, that God, you would reveal to us your will, that you would reveal to us the Lord Jesus, that, Father, we would leave differently from when we come in. Father God, just like James says, God, help us, Lord, not to just hear the word of God, but God, to actually act on the word of God and to do the word to God. We wouldn't be someone who looks in the mirror and then immediately forgets the reflection. But God, we would take your word as seriously as it should be taken. That Father, we would honor your word and give it the attention and the space that it duly deserves. And everybody said, amen. Okay, so first point is this. We're gonna lift a couple of things out of this letter. We're going to lift a couple of things out of what Paul is trying to say to this church in Thessalonica. The first thing is this, embrace grace. If you're taking notes, embrace grace. Now, you'll notice this at almost every letter that Paul writes. He begins, and it can be very easy to miss, it can be very easy to skip over, unless we actually focus and hone in on it to what Paul is actually saying. If we go to verse uh, 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes a habit of opening his letters with this. And we're going to particularly focus on grace. First Thessalonians, he opens with, May God give you grace. Colossians, he begins with, May God give you grace. Galatians, May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace. And he continues in that same way to the Corinthians and to the Romans and to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, and then personally to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Paul is constantly at the forefront of his mind, at the forefront of his communication, and at the forefront of his churches is putting this focus on grace. Now, if I was to ask you, what comes to your mind when I say the phrase, the grace of God? What comes to your mind? Maybe for you, you might think of the forgiveness of sins. You may think of uh, connected to the mercy of God. You may think of access to heaven. You may think of the character of God. And all those things would actually be correct. All those things would be right. But there is a reason, another definition that Paul and even the Lord Jesus himself connects to the grace of God. And sometimes if we don't slow down, read carefully, we might miss what the word of God is saying to us. You see, God himself defines grace as empowerment. There was a, 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 what do you call that? A survey done of over a thousand Christians in the United States about 10 years ago. And uh, the question was, what is God's grace? And 98% of people said, a couple of the things that we had said, most of them had said, you know, it's, it's God's love, it's, it's God's forgiveness, it's God's character, and all those things are correct. But only 2% of those Christians said that grace is God's empowerment. Only two, in fact, less than 2%, just under 2% said that grace is God's empowerment. Jesus himself defines grace, which Paul is talking about, that Paul is greeting with, as the empowerment of God. If we go to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, this is Jesus talking to Paul. Now, I need you to say grace, and I need you to say power. Is that an agreement? Okay, let's go. So, my is sufficient for you. My is made perfect in weakness. Let's do that again. My is sufficient for you. Well done. My is made perfect in weakness. Second Peter 
sorry, 2 Peter 1, verses 2 to 3. 1, 2, 3. Well done. And peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine has given us all things to pertain life and godliness. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us receive by which we may serve God acceptably, acceptably and, and with reverence and godly fear. Now, is this just flowery language, right? Is this this kind of poetic thing that seems to come up in Scripture? No. It is a reality for the believer who is willing to pay attention to it. The grace of God, yes, it is the unmerited favor of God, but the grace of God is the empowerment of God to bring you to places that are beyond your own natural ability. The grace of God will empower you to live out what God's truth requires of us. Because I don't know about you, but I don't fancy living for Jesus on my own humanity. I don't fancy trying to live for Jesus on my own ability, on my own capacity. Much rather, I would rather rely on the grace or the empowerment of God to help me live beyond my own ability. Because we're not called as Christians to live like the world where we have to struggle on our own, struggle in our own capacity. But actually the Holy Spirit, by the grace, the empowerment of God, helps us to live lives that are extraordinary. Lives that take us beyond the realm of human capacity. See, we can't live for God but by his grace, but by his empowerment. God's grace is his power. And if we take this to the actual context that these Thessalonians are dealing with, they're dealing with persecution, intense persecution that in our context, if we're being honest, is quite difficult for us to kind of wrap our heads around. But they're dealing with intense pressure. And Paul begins with, may God give you grace or may God give you his grace power because the believer and the church we are called to live in power not called to do life alone not called to do life isolated or on our own merit but called to live a life of power I don't know about you but I want it this year for me anyway I want this to be a year of grace I would love this to be a year where we truly re-experience that we truly embrace the grace that God has for us, that we would embrace the power that God has given us to live a life worthy. In fact, in Peter writes that we have everything that we need to live a godly life. I don't know about you, but have you ever struggled to live a godly life? It's okay for your pastor to say that, right? That, that, that we've struggled to live a godly life. And sometimes we, we run from left to right trying to kind of find a way to fix stuff and patch things up and get our lives kind of together. When in reality, as Peter says, we have everything that we need to live a godly life. We have everything accessible to us that we need to live for Jesus. But the question is, are we willing to access it and are we willing to ask for it? The grace of God, and I hope we grasp this this morning, the grace of God is the power of God to live life beyond your own ability. Second point is this, thriving or surviving. Second Thessalonians 3, 
sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 to 4. Too many numbers in there. Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. This is a different version. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all of the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. Paul uses a magnificent word here. It's brilliant. For the word endurance in the original Greek is actually, hypo, I've been practicing this, hypomene. Is that right, Pastor? Hypomene. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. Hypomene-ish, right? Basically, what that word means, right? That's in the Greek. What that word means is not the kind of endurance or perseverance that kind of just gets on with it, that kind of muddles through, but a kind of endurance through persecutions, a kind of endurance through tough times that doesn't only just get through the circumstances, but it actually masters the circumstances. So what Paul is saying here, that you Thessalonians, you're not just surviving your difficulties. You're not just getting from A to B. You're not just surviving. You are thriving. In the pressure that these Christians are feeling, have you ever felt pressure? In the persecution that these Christians are experiencing, they're thriving. They're growing. They're becoming better followers of Jesus than what they were. There's a story of World War II, or of missionaries in North Africa. But when the Second World War started and, and the Nazi Germany and Italy began to move in and take land in North Africa, the missionaries had to get out of there. And they were worried that if they left these churches behind, what was going to happen to them? How were they going to survive under this intense persecution? How were they going to survive under this intense tribulation? And they were worried that all the years of their hard work and loving people was going to go to waste. And after the war ended, they came back to find that the churches were stronger than they left, that they were built up in their faith, that they were thriving. They expected the church to collapse under pressure, but actually the church grew under pressure. And I think that's a lesson for us, isn't it? That even when we as the church, whether corporately or individually, experience pressure, experience persecution, experience trial and tribulation, it is actually an opportunity for us to thrive. It's an opportunity for us to grow. In your difficulty this morning, and I'm careful not to remove this too far from the context of what Paul's writing to, but in your tribulation, in your trial, in your difficulty, in your pressure moments, is our hearts and are our eyes open to the reality that we just don't have to survive difficulties, but we can thrive in them. That by God's grace and by God's power, we can become better followers of Jesus as what we were. We can become more faithful, more loving, more patient, more kind. Because I can't become a more patient Christian unless I have something to wait for, right? I can't become more persevering if I don't have something to persevere through. And the point is that when there's trials and when there's difficulties, that is my opportunity to grow. It is my opportunity to thrive. So Paul points out two indicators that this church are thriving. If you want to know, if you're going through a difficult spell at the minute, if you're going through a difficult season, and if you're not in one, sorry to tell you, there'll be one coming up. 
Here's two indicators that Paul lets us know that you're thriving, not just surviving. The first one is this faith. Second Thessalonians 1 and 3 says this, your faith, Paul says to the Thessalonians, to this church, your faith is flourishing. See, this time of pain, insecurity, and loss, their faith was not contracting or waning, but it was flourishing. The term Paul uses for faith is actually double-barreled. It means that the faith was flourishing or their faith was flourishing and that they were learning more about the Lord Jesus. They were gaining more knowledge of him and more truth and more doctrine and more be- the beautiful reality of who God is, but also faith in that they were growing, that they were flourishing, that they were developing in faith and trust in Jesus. That even though time was difficult, they were flourishing in their ability to lean back and trust in him even when circumstances dictate that they probably shouldn't have. So if you want to know if you're thriving and not surviving in your difficult season, are you growing in faith? Are you growing in knowledge of the Lord? Not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge of knowing Him. Are you thriving or are you surviving? Through trials and persecutions, through uncomfortable things, God has ways to strengthen our faith, trust, and reliance on him. The second indicator is this, love. Second Thessalonians 1 in the same verse, verse 3. Your love for one another is growing. And this is an answer to Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3.10 in the former letter. You see, suffering can make us selfish. But when suffering is mixed with grace, God's power, and faith, it produces love. I don't know about you, but when I'm under pressure, believe it or not, you might be surprised by this, I'm not always the most loving. I don't know about you. Have you ever been really under pressure? Now, again, not to remove it too much from the context of this letter, but have you ever been through a really difficult season and something happens in the house and you are seconds away from blowing your top off, right? All the parents said, amen. And yet what Paul's saying here, the more pressurized the church became, the more intense the persecution got, the more they loved each other. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? That the more difficult the season for the local church, including this one, our love ought to grow, not to grow cold. And I think that's a challenge because here, do you know what? The local church will go through many, many seasons, but we ought to take the example of this Thessalonian church and say, even when times are tough, even when things are difficult, whether it's internal pressure or it's external pressure, we will continue to let our love grow. We will continue to let our love flourish. Galatians 5 and 6 says, faith is expressed or is evidenced through love. And we know that, that through James, that our, good, our faith is also expressed through good works. But Galatians tells us, Galatians 5, 6 tells us that faith following Jesus is expressed or is evidenced in loving others. If you want to know the state of your spiritual health, How are you loving others? If you want to check the state of your heart, what's your heart towards others? And if you were to check your heart today, could I encourage you to maybe slow some things down, to reflect, to think, and to pray about loving others? Because we know that our faith is in a good place, even when it's under pressure, even when times are difficult, if I will treat my brother and sister well. Even if I'm under pressure, and by the way, I'm not always going to get it right. 
and I don't get it right. But even when we're under pressure and we're facing difficulty, we're called to treat one another as we should. And that is difficult and it is hard. But if the Thessalonians can do it under risk of their own lives, I think we can do it. I think we're called that even when times are difficult, to prove our faith by loving each other. Third one is this, endurance and evidence. Second Thessalonians 4 verses, sorry, Second Thessalonians 1 verses 4 to 5. I'm jumping to a chapter that doesn't even exist. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence. Endurance is evidence. I'm going to read that again. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you also suffer. Now we know from James 1.13 that suffering is not instigated by God, but by Romans 8.28, we know that God can turn suffering to his purpose, right? That God can actually turn our suffering to good. God does not instigate your suffering. Sometimes we instigate our own suffering, if, if we're being honest. But God does not instigate pain and God does not instigate suffering. However, he can turn it for his good and he can turn it for his purpose. It is not God's purpose that by suffering we should be made worthy. This is a really important distinction. So we see that in the later verse there that the scripture tells us that, that we will be counted worthy. The evidence of our enduring under difficult times for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the kingdom which is important. We would be counted worthy, not made worthy and there's a big difference. To be counted worthy means that we are being we're showing the evidence that we're following Jesus. We're showing the evidence that we're enduring things for him. And some versions will say make worthy, which is fair, but it's not always completely on the ball as much as counted worthy is. Because when we read that in English, it comes across as if, if I endure and if I follow Jesus well, that will make me worthy to go into the kingdom. And all of a sudden we've strayed from the whole thing of uh, grace not works, right? So that's just the wee point for when you're reading other parts of scripture just to be careful of that is that we only enter God's kingdom we are only worthy of God's kingdom through the blood of Jesus nothing else not our own works not our own merit not our own ability or capacity to do things but to be counted worthy or to be evidenced of being worthy we have to know what it is to endure difficult times and yet still declare Jesus as Lord. And when you endure difficult seasons, which I know many of you have, when you have even gone through possibly your own forms of persecution, and you're maybe in your family, you're maybe the standalone Christian at the moment, or maybe in your workplace, or maybe you're going through a trial or a tribulation that is directly connected to you being a follower of Jesus, you enduring that, not just the fact that you're enduring it, but how you're enduring it, remember with love and with faith, is evidence to the kingdom of heaven that you belong there. The fact that you're enduring and how you endure is evidence that you belong in the kingdom of heaven. Is your faith 
evident in this season of your life? Is your faith evident in this season of your life? Fourth one is this, promises and persevering. Last week, in uh, pa- Pastor Philip took us through 1 Thessalonians 5, um, and in, the ver- in verse 8, Paul talks about in his first letter, he's commending them for their faith and their love and their hope. And he kind of does the same in the second letter. He says that he commends them for their faith like we just talked about. He commends them for their love like we just talked about. But Paul doesn't directly mention hope in the same way. Because a few weeks after Paul has written the first letter, it would appear that the Thessalonians are a little bit confused about their hope. That they're a little bit unsettled about their future. They're a little bit unsettled about the coming of the Lord. There's unsettlement in the camp. And so when Paul's writing here, he's basically writing to say, okay, you're doing well in your faith, you're doing well in love, but you've got to find your hope again. And maybe that's for someone this morning. Faith, well done. Love, keep going. Hope. Let me recapture that one again. I don't know about you, but do you ever feel, somebody had once given me a a prophetic word about just the season we were going through one time and the person said to me, like, it's like, your hope is like a box, right? But it's been kicked in. It's dented. It's damaged. And it's basically wrecked. It's in pieces. Have you ever felt like that? Anybody? Where it's as though your hope, you've come out of a season, you've come out of a difficulty, you've come out of a trial, and it's like your hope has been kicked up and down the hall. Decimated. And the word was that God wants to restore your hope. That God wants to give you fresh hope again. And again, maybe that is for someone here this morning. Is that maybe your hope feels dented, broken, and a little bit out of shape. But God wants to renew your hope this morning. God wants to give you fresh hope this morning. That with Him, you're going to make it. Maybe God wants to refresh, renew, restore your hope this morning. So in the difficulty of these trials and the challenges of what they were, Paul basically gives them three promises for the people of God to hold on to. Now, again, to really take into context what this, what's actually going on in the scripture, like we said, it's intense persecution. Now, are we... In our nation at this moment, are we facing the same kind of persecution? Let's be honest, no. Okay? But that does not discount churches across our globe today that have been facing genuine biblical tribulation for decades and decades and centuries and centuries. In fact, even on our own island of Ireland and in Great Britain and of Europe, the church has endured genuine biblical tribulation and challenge. But there will come a day, church, where as history goes in cycles, where the church of Jesus Christ on this island and in Great Britain will probably face persecution again. Genuine trial again. I remember when I, we were in the church in Drumore, uh, we had an elder, and he won't mind me saying this, but he was one of those elders, one of those old, older gentlemen, he wouldn't like me saying that, but uh, 
who was constantly, it was like, you know, it was a, as though the world's fallen apart and the church is going to be persecuted and there's going to be tribulations and we're not going to be able to do this. We're not going to be able to do that. And, and we're going to have our freedoms taken and all this kind of stuff's happening. And I remember being a teenager and thinking, that's just crazy, such and such. I'm not going to listen to him, right? I sure he's, he's no hope. What's that about? Oh, he's just, you know, guard up, will you? Smile. And you know what? See, since those years have passed, I have seen some of the stuff that he said actually begin to come true. Some of the freedoms that we thought it would be ridiculous would ever be taken away, especially in the area of speech, are beginning to become restricted. Our education system is changing. Our political system is facing an upheaval that hasn't been seen since the war. And out of this, we're beginning to see pressure being applied to the church again. And while we're not at this moment experiencing what the Thessalonians were, the next three things I would really like us to take heed to. Because if you're not experiencing it now, trust me, you'll experience it later. Here's three promises that Paul gives the church in Thessalonica. The first one is this, and it's hopeful, is that you would receive a reward. That you will be rewarded for enduring tribulation and for persecution. You will be rewarded. God rewards those who love him. And that reward, we're not gonna spend long on this, that reward goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the scripture, that you would be counted, that your faith would be proven. I see Peter talks about your faith like gold is refined by fire, that your faith would be proved genuine and pure by you enduring tribulation. That you would be rewarded by being counted and evidence as worthy of being, being counted in the kingdom of God. The reward is that you'll stand before him one day before the judgment throne and that you'll be counted worthy to be his. Second promise is this, repayment. This is a difficult one, right? When I said about so far we could take you, this is what I was talking about. This is a very, very difficult scripture. But we preach difficult scriptures, one, because it's truth and if we love you, we'll preach truth, right? Okay, if we love you, we'll preach truth. So this is what it says. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 9, starting at chapter, sorry, starting at verse 6. God is just and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He's talking to the church. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed in heaven, in, from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hendrickson, who is a commentator and a scholar, basically says that when it comes to describing God's punishment, God's judgment, and what is later we discover opens up as hell, is actually pushing the boundaries of human language. It pushes the boundaries of human vocabulary. It is so difficult to encompass the sheer terror and the sheer, well, I don't even know what, I ran out of superlatives, of God's judgment, of, of the suffering that takes place for one, those who attack and who persecute the church, and for those who reject Jesus Christ. The human language, if you even see in the book of Revelation, John is constantly saying, um, Jesus has eyes like fire. Not, he has eyes, he, not, that, he, not his, that his eyes are fire, but the only language that John can come up with is his eyes are like fire because human 
language struggles to even encompass and encapsulate the might of God. Everything is like this and he's like that and he would do this like that and it's like, you know, the streets are as paved as gold. Not, that, not necessarily that they are gold, but they're paved as gold. And the point is this, it is so difficult to encompass the tragedy and the loss that is God's judgment. And as easy as it would be in church to sometimes not talk about it and to gleam over it and to pretend it doesn't exist would not serve you well and would not be faithful to teach in Scripture. Paul here draws a clear line, a clear line that says those who persecute and tribulate the church and those who do not know God, whether through their own ignorance or through their sheer outright rejection of him and rejection of the truth of Jesus and the message of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is judgment awaits. Or as a famous preacher once said, there's hell to pay. And it's a reality of this paradox of this life that we live in. But part of the difficulty, church, is this, is that those who persecute the church aren't always punished in the sight of eternity. Maybe you've been, maybe you have suffered immense pain in your life at the hands of somebody. Immense destruction. Or even when we see the church being treated the way it is across our globe in North Korea and China and North Africa, and I know I'm missing a ton of nations there and continents. But the reality of it is, some will not meet their judgment Till after the Lord returns. And that has been a difficulty throughout Scripture. You see it in Psalm uh, 73, you see it in Habakkuk 1, you see it in Jeremiah, throughout Jeremiah that God, how come they can act like that? God, how come they can do that? God, how come they can get away with that and you do nothing about it? God, what use is it following you if all I get is pain and heartache and difficulty and they're living the life, living how they want? And we know that the scripture says that the sun rises and sets in the wicked and the godly. But it's in those moments, church, that that Paul is telling the Thessalonians that you've got to live with eternal perspective. That you've got to live, as we said the other week, live between the lines. Don't let those lines get blurred. Live between the lines. Live godly. Live holy. Knowing that we'll all stand before the judgment seat one day. That we'll live with eternity in mind. However, there is compensation for God's people. Sometimes on this side of eternity, sometimes there was compensation for God's people. I found this mind-blowing. So Pharaoh wanted to drown the Jewish babies and his own army drowned in the Red Sea. King Darius' advisors wanted to throw David to the lions and it was the advisors who ended up being eaten by the lions. Haman wanted to hang Mordecai and Haman swung from the gallows that he built from someone else. The point is this, careful about messing with the church of Jesus Christ. Careful about messing with God's church. And that is a word internally for the church and externally for outside the church. Careful about approaching and how you treat the church of God and how you treat his people. They are a holy thing. They are a godly thing. And they are a protected thing on this side of eternity. And the next time has run on church. But I'd like to finish with this. It is a righteous thing for God to judge and condemn those who sin and who never accept Jesus. A holy God cannot leave sin unjudged. 
Some people would say, and you've probably heard it, and I think we've all felt it, even if we haven't said it outwardly, that how can God be truly loving if he'd send people to hell? And I know that's opening an entire, probably, series of stuff. But how can God be truly loving, truly gracious, truly merciful if he sends people to hell? I understand the question, I do. And I sympathize with the question. But sometimes in, in asking the question is a misunderstanding of God's holiness and the seriousness of sin. God's holiness and the seriousness of sin. God judges because he's just. But out of that, don't miss the heart of God. Out of God's judgment and out of God's punishment and even out of hell itself, don't miss the heart of God behind it all. I'm gonna read this quick story to you very, very quickly. It's about a doctor and a patient and it goes like this. A Christian doctor had tried to witness to a very moral woman who belonged to a church that denied the need for salvation and the reality of future judgment. God loves me too much to condemn me, the patient would reply. I cannot believe that God would make such a place as a lake of fire. The woman became ill and the diagnosis was cancer. An operation was necessary. I wonder if we should really operate, the doctor said to her in the hospital room. I really love you too much to cut into you and to give you pain. Doctor, said the patient, if you really loved me, you would do everything possible to save me. How can you permit this awful thing to remain in my body? It was easy for them to explain that what cancer is to the body is what sin is to the world. And both must be dealt with radically and completely. Just as a physician cannot love health without hating disease and dealing with it, so God cannot love righteousness without hating sin and judging it. But in the midst of God's judgment and in the midst of God's punishment, don't miss God's heart. John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that none may perish. Nobody would perish. In Peter, we see him saying that, that God is so patient that he wants everybody to come to repentance, that he wishes that nobody would perish, nobody would suffer, that all of humanity would come to repentance. And so in the judgment of God, there exists still the love and the gentleness and the hope of the Father. And so please do not misconstrue what I'm saying this morning. Yes, God is a judge. Yes, God is just. And yes, God does punish those who reject him. But God's arms are open wide for anybody who would accept him. I'm going to finish with this quote. I'm getting into that preacher's habit of saying, I'll finish with this, then I'll finish with that, and then I never do. But, but this is the last quote I'm going to go with. That what, so that's God's heart. Yes, God punishes. Yes, hell is a reality and hell is real. And this is what Paul's conveying to these guys is that you need to live on the right side of life. And can I ask you this morning, are you on the right side here? Are you living between the lines? Because, and I tell you this because I love you, because hell's a reality. God's judgment and God's punishment is a reality. And the only way that is paid for is through Jesus Christ and me throwing myself on him and trusting him for forgiveness. And trusting that his righteousness becomes my righteousness. 
But are you on the right side this morning? Because if you're not, can I encourage you? Can I plead with you? Can I ask you to come on the right side? To make the decision to follow Jesus. Don't put it off. Don't put it away. Make that full commitment to say, God, I'm following you. Maybe you're not even, maybe you know that you're in church and you've been in here for a long, long time, but you know that you're not following Christ. Everything looks okay on the outside. Everything looks fine. But deep down in your heart, you know that you're far from God. Can I ask you to step over that line again? To cry out to him again that he'll forgive you and that he'll accept you and he'll bring you home. That's God's heart. But church, what's our heart? What's our reaction and our response to God's judgment? You see, the danger with the Thessalonians here is that when Paul says those who persecute the church and those who reject Christ will face judgment and they'll face hell. And the last thing the church should do is go, ha ha, you got what you deserve. It's not what the church's heart should be. Our heart needs to be brokenness for people who are lost. Crying out, for, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That even those who would attack the church, who would attack us, that we would pray that they would meet with Jesus. And do you know what the beautiful irony of this letter is? The man who is writing the letter is the man who once persecuted the church. I'm going to finish with this quote by Charles Spurgeon. It says this. Could the band come up, please? If sinners be damned, at least let them leap into hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwanted and unprayed for. God's punishment in hell is a reality. But God would have no man, no woman go there. And we as the church should adopt the same thing. And I don't want to keep bringing this back to this, but Wednesday night's so important. Wednesday prayer and worship, so important. It's about doing battle in the heavenlies. It's about believing. And even if you've been praying for years for your loved ones to get saved, I have two cousins, which I have times a week for them, times I have no emotion left when I'm praying for them. But I pray and I believe that they're going to come back to God again. The point is this, that we as the heart of the church would not let anybody go to hell easily. That when we stand in eternity, we can say we fought for every single soul that crossed that door. Every single soul that crossed into your life you fought for, that you prayed for, that you believed for. Because hell was never made for humanity. It wasn't, it wasn't designed for humanity. Designed for the devil. And we're never meant to be there. And yet Paul is saying to this church, you've got to live with the right perspective. You've got to live with the reality that God's punishment and judgment is real. And so live as though you want to present a good account of your life to him. Would you stand with me? The band are going to lead us in a, a song. And I apologize for, for going a wee bit over this morning, but you know what? Sometimes when you're dealing with heavy stuff like that, you need a wee bit more time, don't you? In our persecutions and our trials and our difficulties, I'd like us to do four things. Four things that Paul implored and asked the church in Thessalonica to do. One, embrace grace. Embrace the power of God in your life so that you would go beyond your own human ability. Two, are you thriving or surviving? We can endure difficult seasons and thrive and grow in faith and grow in love. Three, endurance is evidence. When we endure, not just that we're 
enduring difficult circumstances, but how we endure difficult circumstances and persecutions and trials is the evidence that we belong to the Father. And four, we have promises to help us persevere, that we would be rewarded when we persevere through difficult times, but that we would also know that the church, both throughout history and in this time, will be repaid and recompensated for loving God. Will you pray with me? I know it was heavy this morning. Let's pray. Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the depth of your word, for sometimes the seriousness of your word, God. And the Father, I pray, God, that the, the revelation of truth was revealed this morning. That, God, we would see the seriousness and the beauty and the majesty of your might. That, God, we would live, not for now, but, God, that we would live for eternity. Father, for those of us, God, who know that we need to get on the right side this morning, that we don't leave it, God, that we give our lives to you now. Father, God, I pray that you would convict us of that and we would run running into your arms. Father, for those, God, who are maybe in the seats this morning and they know that in their heart of hearts that they're not following you, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give a conviction and a sense of love and a sense of joy that, God, you want them to come home because, God, hell was never made for humanity. God, heaven was made for humanity. And Father God, I pray, Lord, that we would run the race of faith, eyes fixed on you, Jesus. That, God, we would persevere and that we would endure in the way that you want us to. In Jesus' name, and we all said, amen.